everyone, welcome back to the Here Apologetics. As I want you by user support and patreon.com. I'm joined by Dr. Tony Costa. He's a theologian, a professor, a professor, a pastor. He wears many different hats, and we'll be talking about the Reformation and Reformation theology today. So, Dr. Costa, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, it's my pleasure, Zach. Yeah, I'm so excited for this conversation. We're going to be talking about um, the Protestant Reformation and kind of like the big things that um, play a part in it, like Sola Fide and Sola Scriptura and the papacy and things like that. Um, so to start off, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a professor of uh, apologetics, and um, I also teach on Islam and re other related uh, uh, classes like theology and uh cults, New Age movement, uh, comparative world religion. So I teach at Toronto Baptist Seminary up here in Canada. And uh, I also teach as an instructor at the University of Toronto in uh, studies on the Gospels and ancient, uh, ancient Near East archaeology in the Bible. Um, I did my undergraduate, my bachelor's and master's degrees uh, at the University of Toronto. And then I did my doctorate uh, in uh, Radboud University in the Netherlands, and uh, I have a number of published works in the area of early Christianity. Um, my book, Worship and the Risen Jesus, is uh, is uh, is out, and uh, I have a new book coming out in about a month or two called The Earliest Christian Creeds and Hymns, What Earliest Christians uh, Believed in, in Word and Song. And so, and I'm also involved in academic uh, writing, uh, teaching students how to defend the Christian faith, equipping them with the tools uh, to be able to articulate the gospel in a godly fashion and also in a, in a gracious context as well with those who oppose us. Mm, that's so great. Um, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. And if you're listening live, um, we'll do a little bit of Q&A at the end if you have questions. Um, but to start off, talking about like Reformation theology and what's going on here, what got you interested in like the Reformation and Reformation theology? Yeah, I, I was raised a Roman Catholic. I uh, My parents were from, uh, my background is Portuguese, and my parents migrated here in 1966. And then a year later, um, I came into this world. Uh, and I uh, was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, very religious upbringing. And it wasn't until I was 15 years of age that I found Christ. Uh, two cousins of mine uh, met the Lord, were experienced this new birth. They shared the gospel with me one night. And I was so challenged by what they said that I actually thought that I had to go and prove them wrong because they had come to this new life with Christ and so forth. Mm. And so what that did was it just uh, it, it challenged me. I bought a Bible, read it for the first time. And instead of me trying to convert them, the Bible, con God used his word to convert me. And, and shortly after that, I, um, I realized the importance of apologetics. And so the Lord uh, drew me into higher education um, to learn New Testament theology, learn the languages, the biblical languages, and also to challenge um, the opponents of the Christian faith, whether we're talking about other world religious traditions like Islam or Buddhism, and also dealing with various cultic groups like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and other groups like that. So my passion has been in giving reasons for faith. And so 1 Peter 3.15 has really been my scripture model uh, to always be ready to give an answer to those who ask of you about the hope that you have, which is Christ. But what led me to Reformation theology was um, understanding the importance of the authority of God's word, scripture alone. And that just led me into figuring out, okay, what were these guys all about? Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and Wycliffe and, and uh, Tyndale and so forth. And um, I just saw uh, such a richness to the word of God. I saw a, a purity of the gospel that I never saw. In, in the Roman Catholic Church, I was uh, I was surrounded by a lot of ritual, a lot of smoke and bells and uh, a lot of beautiful art, but I was lost. I did not have peace with God. I did not know uh, that my sins could be forgiven. And so finding the Lord Jesus Christ um, led me to a deeper uh, dive into the scriptures, which in turn led me to what was it about these guys that that extolled scripture and, and, and talked about sola scriptura. And so that's why I think uh, reclaiming those Reformation truths is so important because a lot of our evangelical churches are beginning to slip. 
Yeah, that's great. Um, can you hear me? Sorry, I cut off there for a second. Yeah, um, I can hear you. I apologize for that. My internet connection is a little weak right now. Um, but we should be good. Um, could you talk a little bit about like what are these Reformation truths? Like, what is the Protestant Reformation all about? Um, yeah. What's like the be- you talk about the beauty of the Reformation and reading yeah. the reformers? How is it different than like the Catholic Church and um, right. things like this in your view? Yeah, I think it's important to realize that for a lot of Protestants, they think church history began uh, in 1517 with Martin Luther. And that's simply not true. Uh, the Reformation has been an ongoing process that has been going throughout church history, and it reached its peak in 1517 with Luther's uh, nailing the 95 Theses to, the, to the, the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. But before Luther, it's important to realize that there were uh, reformers before Luther. It's just that many of them ended up dead, uh, some of them were uh, run out of town. Um, Luther was was greatly protected by the princes of Germany, and he was able to do what a lot of others were not able to do. So what you find is, I, I usually, I refer to these as the three Ps, Zach, the primacy mm-hmm. of Christ, the priority of scripture, and the purity of the gospel. And when we look at these reformers, uh, Luther and before, I'm talking about going all the way back to Augustine, in the fifth century, and even before that, into uh, some of the church fathers like Diognetius and Clement of, uh, Clement of Rome. And what you find is that these fellows were teaching the same thing that Christ was to be supreme, preeminent in all things, Christ alone. And then the importance of the scriptures as the voice of God, the priority of scripture over all things. Some of the famous apologists like Athanasius and others. Uh, appealed to the supremacy of the scriptures in refuting the heretics, and also Mm. the purity of the gospel, this beautiful revelation that God saves sinners by his grace alone without their works that they could not merit. And so in in Roman Catholicism, of course, the and, and that's what these reformers were challenging was, number one, what is the ultimate authority in the church? Rome said it was the pope. Um, and these reformers said, but the scripture doesn't say that. The scripture says that Christ is the head of his church, Christ is king, and uh, Christ is to be uh, preeminent over all things. And then when it came to the question of uh, how can a man be made right with God, well, Rome said he had to go, he needed the sacraments, he had to go through various meritorious works. And the reformers looked at the, the gospel and they said, but wait a minute, the gospel says that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and not that of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And so the Reformation for me, Zach, the Reformers were not innovators. They didn't come along and just invent some new brand of Christianity. What they did was they rediscovered, they recovered uh, the gospel purity, the primacy of Christ. And they didn't. They admitted openly, we're not making up anything new here. They, they weren't trying to start a new denomination or denominations. They wanted to go back, and and one of their one of their the terms that they used was in Latin was ad fontes, and ad fontes means back to the source, back to the fount the fountains, and what they meant by that was back to the scriptures, and so mm-hmm. when they went back to the scriptures and only the scriptures, they found that the gospel that Augustine preached, the go- the gospel that uh, the church fathers were talking about, like Athanasius. Uh, what the Waldensians were preaching back in the 12th century, and then Jan Hus in Bohemia in the 14th century, up all the way through Wycliffe and, and then Tyndale and so forth, was the same gospel. Mm-hmm. It was the same gospel that the apostles were preaching. And so that's why uh, I find these reformational doctrines, the the five solas of the, of the Reformation, are so central because they're God-glorifying. They focus on Christ. And it and it's and it ends with soli deo gloria that it is to the glory of God alone, not man's glory, but God's glory alone. Mm. So today um, we're putting in talking about uh, sola scriptura and sola fide, specifically with regards to the five solas. But maybe it'd be helpful. And you, you talk about like there being all five. If you want to talk about the other three that we're not going to give like a lot of attention sure. to at the moment. Sure. Sure. Well, we talked about sola scriptura, which means scripture alone as the ultimate authority. That's not to be confused with solo scriptura which means that it's it's just, you know, me, my Bible, and I under a cherry tree. It, sola Scriptura means the Bible is the ultimate authority, but that doesn't mean we just discard the church fathers and discard great men and women of God like John Bunyan and, and Spurgeon and so forth. And, and, of course, sola fide means we're saved by faith alone. There's nothing that we can contribute 
to our salvation. The only thing we contributed to our salvation, Zach, was our mm -hmm. sin that made it necessary. Um, sola gratia, grace alone, means that God, God saves sinners based on his unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. It's not merited. We cannot merit it. And so grace alone basically says there's nothing you can do. No amount of law keeping, the Ten Commandments, nothing can be done to uh, obtain salvation. It's only by God's grace. The other one was solus Christos. And solus Christos means Christ alone. And this was important because under the papacy, medieval Europe, they brought up the, these ideas of, of numerous intercessors. And so, for example, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was elevated to such a status that she became the mediatrix, uh, the one between men and Christ. And she was the dispenser of all graces. And then, of course, you had a myriad of saints that you could go to, like St. Joseph, St. Anthony, St. Andrew, and St. Philip, and so on and so on. The angels are also called saints, St. Michael, St. Gabriel, and you could also seek their intercession. And so because of all these intercessors between us and, and, and God, the, the, the status of Christ as the one mediator between God and man was demoted. And so Christ was kind of this angry judge out there, and you needed to approach him through his mother. Uh, who is gracious and, and motherly and so forth. And so what the reformers felt was that we need to focus on the uniqueness of Christ, that Christ alone saves. Christ alone is the one mediator between God and men. And, and that does not include saints or, or, or even the mother of Jesus. Um, and then you got Soli Deo Gloria. And that means that everything in history, everything is headed towards one trajectory. And that is the ultimate glory of God. So that at the end of time, if you notice how the Bible ends things, it's always with God will be uh, maximally glorified, right? Mm -hmm. Philippians 2, 9 to 11, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so everything that God does in the theater of history, God does for his ultimate glory. And so in the salvation of people, he is glorified in his mercy. In the execution of his justice against the wicked, those who rebel against him, he is glorified in his justice. And so the main objective of God is the glory of his name, the glorification of his name. And that is why uh, the reformers said everything in the end is all about his glory, solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Uh, not not the saints, not Mary, not the popes, not the bishops, but to God alone be the glory. Yeah, I appreciate you kind of walking through those, and I and I can just feel like from talking to you, um, the emphasis of the reformers on like bringing the glory to God and a very like high view, high view of God and such. Very high. Um, so one of the things that we're going to be talking about here is this idea of sola scriptura, because I think of the five solas, this is contested a lot, especially among maybe like Catholic or Orthodox um, people. And it's, do you want to talk a little bit about like in a little more detail, like what sola scriptura is all about and like why you think it's something that like as Christians we should hold to? Right. Well, sola scriptura, uh, again, there, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what Protestants or Reformed Christians mean by that. It, it simply means that scripture is the ultimate authority for faith and practice. So it's like the Supreme Court uh, in your country and in my country, there is no court higher than the Supreme Court. You cannot appeal a Supreme Court decision because it's the highest court. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the Bible is the Supreme Court of the Christian that binds his or her conscience. And therefore it is the last, uh, uh, it is the arbitrator of all decisions. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't believe in, of course, there's traditions that are good and, and uh, encouraging, but then there are traditions that are man-made that violate scripture. Jesus mm -hmm. opposed such traditions in the gospels, um, like those who were that were commandments of men that violate God's law. Then there's also the understanding that sola scriptura does not mean that we don't believe that there are other sources of truth. For example, um, the, the works of Newton, Isaac Newton on, on, on physics and the laws of gravity. Uh, we're not saying that Newton was wrong, but we, we believe that there can be truth in other sources. But what we're saying is that scripture is the ultimate authority in the areas of faith uh, in God and God's revelation and in practice. Now, 
the the Roman Catholic view and the Orthodox view, and I appreciate appreciate you bringing in the Orthodox because they're 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 always neglected because we're so Westernized we don't think of the Eastern Church. Um, the view in the Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church is that they deny sola scriptura because they believe that scripture and sacred tradition are equal. They're on equal planks. They're two planks. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has a third one, actually. They hold to sacred tradition, uh, the scriptures, and then they hold to what's called the magisterium. And the Roman magisterium is the pope and his cardinals, his bishops, and they are the true interpreters of the scripture and the only true interpreters. In other words, you and Isaac could not understand the scriptures by ourselves. We need the magisterium to infallibly interpret those scriptures for us. So um, the Roman Catholic and, and, and Orthodox churches will maintain their sacred traditions are equal to scripture. And therefore they will justify things like icons, the use of images in worship. They'll justify purgatory. They'll justify even indulgences are still going on in the Roman church today. It hasn't stopped. It's still in practice today. Um, and the, the problem with that view, as I see it in orthodoxy in the Roman Catholic Church, is we know that church fathers have contradicted themselves. We know popes have contradicted themselves. So at the end of the day, uh, what is the ultimate what is the ultimate authority here? So if 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 the church's tradition violates the scriptures, um, which one overrules the other? Do you have like an instance of this by chance you could bring up for someone that's curious um, they can just kind of look at? Yeah. So for example, in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you had popes, for example, that said that uh, at communion, uh, the faithful should receive both the, the bread and the wine. Mm -hmm. and, then, and, and then that was contradicted by another pope who says, no, no, uh, they don't need to, drink, to have the wine. They just take the bread, the host, because uh, they, they, the Roman Catholic Church... Um, uh, ruled on this decision of what's called uh, uh, the idea is that when you take the bread and the bread alone by itself, the bread by itself includes both the body and the blood of Christ. And mm. the cup uh, has both properties of the body and the blood of Christ. So today, if yeah. you know any Roman Catholic friends, Zach, when they go to mm -hmm. mass and they take communion, you'll notice they'll go up and they'll receive just the host, the bread. They won't receive the cup, the wine. Um, and so the the idea here is that one pope says, no, you got to take both elements. The other pope comes along and says, no, you don't need to take both uh, elements because uh, both properties are found in each of, of the, the, the emblems of the bread and the wine. And this is called, in, in Roman Catholic language, this is called concomitance. That is, you're mm -hmm. eating uh, the, 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 the body and blood of Christ, drinking the blood of Christ, if you have just the bread or if you just have... The cup. So that's one example. Uh, we also know that there have been popes who were heretics. So uh, the Pope Honorius, for example, uh, accepted the heresy of monothelitism. That is the heresy that says Jesus only had one nature uh, mm. when the church taught he had two, human and divine nature. Um, and there have been popes as well that were Arians that bought into the Arian heresy that Jesus was not uh, eternally God, but that he was a, the first creature that God the Father had created. And so here are examples where, where the bishops of Rome have contradicted each other. And the only thing that remains unmovable and unchangeable is the Word of God. And therefore, the Word of God trumps um, the position of the papacy. It trumps any of the positions that even the Orthodox Church have made. And so these church will claim authority. They will claim that they created the canon of Scripture. So the Roman Catholics will say, well, how do you know that uh, Mark is part of the gospel, part of the gospel collection? Well, because we decided in the canon. But then the Orthodox Church will say, we decided the canon. And then if you look at the Old Testament of the Roman Catholic Church, you've got seven extra books called the Apocrypha. But then if you look at the Orthodox Old Testament canon, they have extra books that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't have. And so which is which here? And so right now what you'll find is many Roman Catholic and Orthodox will be at loggerheads with each other. They've been since 1054 AD, but they've been in loggerheads with each other, each of, one, each of them claiming to be the true church. And so the, the evangelical position is if you want to know what the early church looked like, you need to go back to the sources. And those sources are the scriptures. So think of tradition as, think of it as a snowball. It begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? It's like a snowball when you roll it in the mm -hmm. snow. 
And that's how tradition accrues. So what, what we're dealing with is the incrustation of all of these traditions that have developed over church history. And the reformers were saying, okay, let's take that onion and let's peel the layers off and let's get back to the core. And that's mm. what the Reformation was calling for, return back to the sources. So that's the whole idea behind Sola Scriptura is just kind of Correct. returning to um, what Scripture is actually teaching. Correct. So, so one of the um, like counter arguments that can be made here is a lot of times I'll see something like, uh, "Well, you can only get to Sola Scriptura, and having Scripture alone is like your your authority through um, tradition because the Bible doesn't teach Sola Scriptura, so you're only going to get it through like maybe like the Church Fathers teaching about right. like, the authority of Scripture or something like that." Um, so, right. how'd you respond to like that kind yeah. of counter argument? Yeah, well, the Church Fathers actually did talk; they didn't use the word Sola Scriptura, but. Um, I just finished a course on biblical reliability here at Toronto Baptist Seminary, and we, we also dealt with the church fathers and their view of uh, the supremacy of scripture. Uh, they didn't use the word sola scriptura, that's a Latin phrase, um, but they certainly spoke of these scriptures alone being the sources of authority. So so the, the, problem, the problem here is that the Bible does teach sola scriptura. It doesn't use the word, just like it doesn't use the word trinity. Uh, that doesn't stop people from believing in the trinity, even though the Bible doesn't use the word trinity. The Bible does point out uh, in, in, in numerous places by implication the truth of sola scriptura. So take the famous passage in 2 Timothy 3.16 to 17. All scripture, Paul says, is God-breathed, right? The traditional term is inspiration, but the Greek word is theonostos, which means literally God breathed out. All scripture is God breathed. The only literature that we know that is called God breathed is the scriptures. The fathers of the church never said their writings were God breathed. The reformers never made that claim. And then Paul goes on to say, all scripture is God breathed and it's profitable for what? For teaching, correction, for instruction, uh, for rebuking, for what end? So that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Well, if scripture is sufficient for correction, for teaching, for rebuking, and the end result is that the servant of God is thoroughly furnished for every good work, well, the implication is it's 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 complete enough to do that job. It's mm -hmm. adequate to do that job. So even though Paul doesn't use the actual phrase scripture alone, he implies that the scriptures are the ground and foundation of the church. The church, the church is described as the ground and foundation, but but remember, what 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 do pillars, Paul also calls the church a pillar, what do pillars do? Well, the job of pillars is to keep things up. And so the church is called to hold up the word of God, and, and Paul tells Timothy, this, this is your source. If you want to teach scripture alone, if you want to uh, correct, if you want to instruct, you go to the God-breathed scriptures. So mm. um, he didn't have to say God-breathed, but you can, by implication, see that by calling scripture God-breathed, Paul has basically distinguished and set scripture apart from all other literature. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, so what do you think about, like, I can't remember the exact book, but in the scripture it talks about um, how Paul's talking about, like, holding fast to your traditions as well. Um, yes. Maybe like, kind of like another counter argument to say, hey, like, we we have the scripture, but we also have this tradition that we can um, use right. as authoritative. Well, see, yeah, so that's an, that's, that's an anachronistic fallacy because mm. what they're assuming is what Paul's talking about is these traditions, you know, like the Marian dogmas, the Assumption of Mary, the Immaculate Conception, papal infallibility, as if Paul knew all of these things. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's it's anachronistic because what they're trying to tell you is that the apostles held to the same sacred tradition that the Roman Catholic Church holds to. And, mm -hmm. and that's just, and that's, to be quite frank, that is just absurd because the, the word that Paul uses for tradition, he says, the traditions that have been passed on to you. He's using a past tense. In other words, it's something that's already been completed. It's not something that's ongoing throughout the church's history. And these traditions, the word tradition means the passing down of information. What did Paul pass on to the Thessalonian church? Well, when he first visited them, he gave them the gospel. He, he spoke the gospel message to them. And of course, later on, he writes to them, but he tells them to remember the traditions. Well, what is that? Mm -hmm. the, the information, the transmission of information that I passed on to you. But look at the, the the tense of the verb. The tense of the verb is past. It's not this, uh, keep the traditions that are ongoing, 
He doesn't use this present indicative tense. He speaks mm -hmm. of it as something that's already been delivered and that these traditions are the gospel message. And so mm -hmm. to argue that that what Paul means by that is this ongoing uh, stream that will that will uh, come alongside of the Bible is is the height of exegesis. It's basically reading into the scripture uh, a 19th century idea uh, that has been read back into the text, and that's just that's terrible exegesis. That's not proper biblical uh, interpretation. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. Um, the next kind of solo that we're going to get into, um, I do want to say at the end, we're doing a little bit of Q&A. So if you have mm -hmm. questions, um, or if you want to send a super chat, anything like that, we'll do that a little bit at the end. But for now, it's, let's talk about sola fide, because this is probably the most prevalent one, saying that we're justified um, by our faith alone, not by our works. Um, so you talk about like what sola fide is, what it's all about, and like why you think that it's something that we should hold to as believers? Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing about sola fide is that, once again, um, Faith is a gift from God. Um, and this is something that is made clear in Ephesians 2, 8. Um, by grace, you have been saved. It's a perfect tense, uh, meaning completed with ongoing results. Uh, mm -hmm. By grace, you have been saved uh, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. Now, that term, this, it's known as a demonstrative pronoun. And it's pointing back to both faith and uh, and grace. This, what is this? Grace and faith, this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And in Philippians 1, Paul says, it has been given unto you to believe. And so the very act of faith is also a gift from God. Because remember, uh, salvation is regeneration. We're raised from spiritual death. He has raised us up in Christ Jesus. And as raised, uh, uh, regenerated, born-again believers, God gives us faith just the way a newborn, when a child is born, they automatically have faith to reach to their mother, to be cuddled by their mother, to be nursed by their mother. And so this faith is something that God gives us. And therefore, because it's a gift, uh, it's not something that you can earn. So, so if I gave you a gift, Zach, and said, hey, Zach, happy birthday, I'm going to give you a gift, and I give you something, you go, wow, this is awesome. I've always wanted this. And then I said, okay, 50 bucks. Well, that's not a gift. Right, that's a due. That's something that is due, and so uh, sola fide maintains that our means of receiving God's grace is given only on the basis of faith. It, it cannot be done through our works. There's no amount of good works that you and I can do to obtain that. Because if you and I could be saved, potentially could be saved by our works, then Jesus Christ died in vain. He died for nothing. There would be no need for the death of Christ if we could be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments or, or various laws and so forth. So the very necessity of the death of Christ shows us that we were lost without God, without hope in this world. Mm. It's so beautiful to think about being saved by faith alone. I was reading, um, I think it was Timothy Keller who was talking about um, how if we were saved by, say, like a good certain amount of good works, there'd be a point where we could just say, like, hey, I don't need to serve God anymore because I got my quota done. I'm saved. Yeah. Um, but be, by being saved, saved by faith alone kind of erases that. Um, so yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's also known as the Pelagian heresy. Back in uh, Augustine was uh, debating with a, a British monk who basically said that, no, we, we're actually born without sin. We're born sinless. Uh, and we could actually, we actually have the, the, the ability within ourselves to keep God's law. Mm -hmm. And Augustine said, <laughs> That absolutely not. That's not what Scripture teaches. Because Augustine was mm -hmm. saying to God, He says, "Grant what you command, uh, give what you command, uh, give whatever you um, command, whatever you will, but give what you command." In other words, if you want mm -hmm. us to be holy, then give us holiness. If you want us to be faithful, then give us faith. And and um, uh, Pelagius uh, went crazy when he heard that and says, "What are you talking about? We're able. We we we're able to to keep God's law." And mm -hmm. and Augustine basically said, "Not a chance. You 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 are a rebel under God's wrath, and and you need forgiveness. You need Christ, and that can only be appropriated by faith." Mm. That's so great. Um, so one of the like counter arguments that I'd love to address very um as we progress here is this idea. Well, um, you could say, well, you have this Ephesians two eight, which says you're saved by grace alone, um, through your faith. But then you have like James, um, James two, where it says faith without works is dead. Um, and you would think that faith without 
it just seems like it's kind of going against this idea of being saved by faith alone. So how would you respond right. um, to like a counter argument there? Right. Even even Luther struggled with James because Luther at first thought James was opposing Paul, and mm -hmm. and Luther made his famous quip that uh, that James was an epistle of straw. It was a weak <laughs> epistle uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to Paul's letters. And Luther of course, had the best insults. He did. In fact, you know, there's probably you probably know there's an app out there called the Luther Insulter where you get a daily <laughs> insult from Luther. So you can look it up. It's called the Daily Luther Insult Insulter. So there are quotes from Luther where he insults you every day. <laughs> you could check that out. But okay, let's put it this way: uh, James um, James uh, actually mentions in chapter two about faith without works is dead. And then he actually says, and you, as you can see, a man is, is justified by works and not by faith alone. And, and, and so uh, Roman Catholics and Orthodox will say, ah, there you go. James is denying uh, faith alone. No, he's not. We need to put James into context here. Remember, James is talking about, in chapter two, he's talking about Christian behavior, the fruit of our faith. He's talking about living out the Christian life. So he uses an example of, you know, some poor fella comes into your assembly and he doesn't have much and you make him sit in the back because, uh, you know, you're embarrassed of his poverty and so forth. And James says, how can you, how can you do that? How can you show partiality that way? And then if someone is hungry and he comes to you and you just say, God bless you, you know, off you go, God bless you. Well, you've given him a blessing, but his stomach is still empty. And James is, is, is concerned about action here. And the reason for that, Zach, is because in the church, James is addressing two types of people. There are those in the church who say, I have faith, but they got nothing to show for it. The proof's mm -hmm. in the pudding. They got nothing to show for it. They're there every Sunday. They say they love Christ, but their lifestyle betrays them. And then you've got those who say, I have faith in Christ, and you see it. You see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You could see Christ-like character there. And so what James is saying is this. James is saying, if you say you have faith and you do not have works, and here's the pivotal point, James says, will that faith save him? What faith? Mm -hmm. The faith that is bereft of any good works. That is a faith that doesn't produce works. Will that faith save him? And the implication is, no, it won't. Well, then James, uh, James goes on to say, well, let's look at some examples from the Old Testament. He gives the example of Abraham, gives the example of Rahab. And then he says this, that you could see that they were justified by their works. Now, now this is really important. Paul is talking about justification before God. And that's by faith, because God looks at the heart. James is talking about justification before men who need to see our works. If they don't see our works, then they won't justify us. They won't say, hey, that's a godly Christian there. But if they see our works, Right, like Jesus said in, in Matthew five sixteen. Therefore, let your light shine. Light, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. And so James is talking about action, showing mm. action. So we're justified by works before men, not mm. before God. We're justified by faith before God, not before men. And therefore, Paul is talking about the works of the law. Right, no one can be justified by keeping the works of the law. James is talking about the works of faith. That's a different mm -hmm. category. So it's apples and oranges. And therefore, James would totally agree with Paul that we are saved by faith alone, but before men, we are justified by our works because they cannot see our hearts. And so these are completely two different distinctions. Paul agrees with James, right? Didn't Paul say, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works? Of mm. course. Paul was not an antinomian. He believed that works are evidence of our faith, right? Uh, uh, Titus 2.11, uh, Titus Christ created for himself a people who are zealous for good works. And therefore, we need to put James in context. What is James talking about? What is his whole argument? His argument is about True faith produces works, and we are justified by our works in what context? Well, not before God, because Paul says no one can be justified before God by anything you do. And therefore, the context of James is showing our works before men.
Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, so another one of the things that we're going to talk about with regards to the Reformation is like pa- papal authority um, and things along these lines. Did you just want to talk about kind of like um, the Reformation and how it challenged papal authority and kind of like your take on um, all this stuff with like the doctrine of the papacy? Yeah. Well, papal authority uh, basically says that the Bishop of Rome is the representative of Christ on the earth, that he is, one of his titles was Vicarus Christi, that he was the vicar of Christ, the the representative of Christ on the earth. And uh, he was, he claimed to be the supreme authority over everything, including the Bible. Well, these reformers, uh, again, going way back to the uh, 12th century with the Waldensians and um, the papacy is something that really gets going around, let's say the turn of the millennium, about a thousand AD, the, the papacy becomes this really huge uh, uh, authoritarian office. Before mm-hmm. that, the Bishop of Rome is squabbling with other bishops and, and other bishops are saying, you know, we're all the same. You know, who do you think you are? You're not better than us. Uh, but it's really not until the turn of the millennium. Now, that's when things start. You'll notice, for example, the Pope uh, crowns uh, Charlemagne the Great mm-hmm. uh, and begins the, the, the whole Holy Roman Empire. And from there on, the, the papacy begins to become politically involved. So the papacy is not just a religious uh, institution. It's mm-hmm. also political. The papacy would make decisions uh, on, on, on borders in Western Europe. And the papacy would be the final arbiter in certain decisions that had to be made. It wielded incredible power in, in the world of politics. And um, if you ever look at the, the uh, coat of arms of the papacy with the the tiara, you'll notice there's two two keys that are like in a crisscross fashion. One is gold, one is silver. The silver represents the Pope's secular authority and the gold represents the Pope's religious authority. And so what happened with the reformers was they noticed that the church was basically following the Pope uh, uh, by whatever decision he made. So if mm. the Pope said something, we call this de fiat by just by utterance, by by declaration, it is true. So Ignatius of Loyola, who who created the Jesuits, the Counter Reformation movement, he once said that if the Church says if something is black and the Church says it's white, then we must believe that it's white. Mm-hmm. In other words, the papacy trumps everything. Well, the reformers said, now wait a minute here. Christ is the true head of the Church. He is the supreme ruler of the Church and the church is his body. How can the Pope claim to be head of the church? Where does the Bible teach that Christ has any human representative? I mean, the Roman Catholic Church thinks that Peter was the first installed Pope, but all of the early church fathers um, did not recognize that truth, that Peter was the first Pope. Um, and, And so what the reformers did was the reformers looked at the scriptures again, looking for this backup for the papacy, couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. Papacy was a very corrupt institution. At one time, there were three different popes rivaling each other. This uh, mm-hmm. this was during the so-called Babylonian captivity of the church. And uh, the, 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 the headquarters of the papacy moved from Rome to Avignon, France for a, a number of years. And then, of course, you, you, there's the story of popes who sired illegitimate children uh, and so forth. Um, and, and this was happening even in the medieval period. And, and, and so the reformers came to the point where they unilaterally re- basically not only rejected the papacy, but they denounced the Pope as antichrist. Mm-hmm. And in fact, all the major Protestant confessions, whether it's the, uh, the the 39 Articles of Faith of the Church of England or the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession, uh, uh, the Second Baptist Confession, or even the, 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 the Methodist Confession of Faith, mm. the Heidelberg uh, Confession, the, the, the Synod of Dort, all of these Protestant um, confessions, uh, every one of them decry the papacy as antichrist because the papacy in claiming to be the vicar of Christ. The word vicar means to be in the place of, mm-hmm. like vicarious atonement. Yeah. Well, the, the the Greek equivalent of that is the word anti. And so when when the, the reformers saw vicari, vicaris Christi, they said that's the Latin equivalent of antichrist. And so they said, by your own mouth, you've you've 
you've identified yourself as Antichrist. So they saw that as usurping the place of the Holy Spirit, who is the rightful one who comes in the place of Christ, the other comforter. Mm -hmm. And when the Pope claimed to be the Holy Father, which is his official address, when people address the Pope, they address him as Holy Father, they saw that as an usurping of the of the title of God the Father, the right of God the Father, who is the Holy Father. Uh, Jesus addressed him as such. And when the Pope claims to be the head of the church, the physical, the visible church, they saw that as usurping the authority of God the Son. And so what they saw in the papacy was a blasphemy against the Trinity, against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where the Pope is aggregating to himself the offices of the triune God. And so you can understand and see why uh, these reformers took a very dim view of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm, that's so great. Um, so we're going to keep going through some of these questions here. Um, and let's talk about the role of tradition for a second, like from mm -hmm. like your perspective, from a Protestant perspective. Um, because, you know, if you talk to like a Catholic and Orthodox, I'll um, say we can't just look at the Bible from our 21st century perspective and just kind of make these judgments. We need this tradition to kind of um, understand like how to interpret scripture. So from a Protestant perspective, like how do you view the role of tradition? Yeah. Well, well, let me say that the implication of the Roman Church and the Orthodox, when they talk like that, what they're doing is they're basically saying the Scripture is not clear enough. So there's something that, that Protestants hold to called the perspicuity of Scripture, which means that the Scriptures are clear. God has given the Scriptures in such a way that we can understand His plan of salvation. Now, we're not going to understand everything. We're not going to understand God's secret counsel and his secret decrees. You know, uh, the Bible says that uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God and the things revealed belong to us and our children, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Mm -hmm. But tradition has its place. But tradition, again, can never trump God's word. So let me give you an example. So an example of tradition is when we celebrate Christmas, um, there is no command in Scripture to observe the birth of Jesus. Um, there's nothing in scripture that tells us when Jesus was born, the month or the date and so forth. So why do Christians celebrate Christmas? Well, some Christians have a very dim view of Christmas. They think, oh, we shouldn't celebrate. This is stuff that, that came from pagan background and so forth, which, which I contest. I don't think it did, but, mm -hmm. but then there are Christians who say, oh, we should celebrate the birth of Jesus. It's a wonderful time to share his love with the world. So at the end of the day, uh, Christians are not obligated to observe Christmas, and they're not obligated to observe Christmas. In other words, this is a gray area. Christians can agree to disagree on the on this area. And then, of course, there's the there's the whole question of, for example, in some churches they want the pastors to wear uh, clerical robes. Other churches, mm -hmm. a suit and tie is fine. Um, well, some say, well, you should, they should, they should formally dress because it's a sign of respect and so forth and so on. Well, you know, again, those traditions are okay. And, and there was, there was an approach that the Puritans were the most, um, let's say the most extreme in this area, the, the, the Puritans held to what was called the, the regulative principle. The regulative mm -hmm. principle said, if it's not in the Bible, we don't do it. Right. So they didn't celebrate Christmas. They actually forbade Christmas when they came to, to, to the Americas, New England, it was illegal under the Puritans to celebrate Christmas in New England. Uh, the, the, the Puritans refused to wear wedding bands because the Bible never mentions wedding bands. Yeah. And then there was another view called the, uh, the, there was the regulative and then there was the normative principle. And this was the view that was held by, for example, the, the, Anglican, the Church of England said, look, uh, scripture may not command us to wear uh, clerical garbs, but as but in the, in the Episcopalian Anglican tradition, and Lutheran and and some Presbyterian, they wear clerical garbs. They'll say, "Look, Bible doesn't say we should, but it doesn't say we shouldn't." Uh, in other words, if it doesn't violate any clear uh, command of Scripture, then it's okay. Mm. So all of these traditions, the the rule of thumb is this: uh, I wouldn't go to the extreme that the Puritans went, but I would say that. The rule of thumb is if it doesn't violate any direct command of scripture, then I don't see anything wrong with it. I mean, Jesus himself observed tradition. For example, when, when Jesus had the last supper, uh, it says he took the cup. Well, if you read Exodus 12, where God laid down the rules of the Passover, it mentions the Passover lamb, it mentions the unleavened bread, it mentions the bitter herbs. There's nothing said about the cup of wine. There's no drinking of wine during the mm -hmm. Passover. So what happened? Well, obviously it developed in Jewish history where they incorporated the cups, the four cups of the Passover Seder. 
but that doesn't violate any command of scripture. However, mm. in Mark 7, where Jesus confronts the Pharisees and they're saying, well, why don't your disciples wash their hands? This is the tradition of the elders. And Jesus says, you hypocrites, well, did Isaiah speak well of you that you follow the commandments of men and you put aside the commandments of God. And so whenever tradition violated scripture, you will notice Jesus took a stand against mm. tradition in favor of God's word. Uh, and therefore, the traditions that we hold to, you know, Thanksgiving, you know, Americans celebrate Thanksgiving, Canadians celebrate Thanksgiving. Does the Bible say we should observe Thanksgiving Day? No. Does it say we shouldn't? No. Uh, and so tradition has its place. Mm. Um, and the whole question of, for example, uh, some of the early church fathers said that when Christians baptize, uh, they should dip the person uh, three times, each for the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And mm. then... And then Basil the Great uh, said, you should baptize, but you must face Jerusalem. So you got to face the city of Jerusalem and you got to dunk them face first. Mm. Well, I don't know too many Baptists that do that. <laughs> um, but but as you know, there's also there's difference, uh, differences of opinion on on how to on how to baptize. So you yeah. got, some of them will sprinkle, some will pour, some will immerse. And then others will say, but we believe in pedo-baptism. Children should be baptized. Others will say, no, it's credo-baptism. So there are a lot of, you know, a lot of traditions that have evolved over Christian history. But my rule of thumb is, look, as long as it doesn't violate God's word, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Because at the mm -hmm. end, scripture trumps everything else. Mm, that's so great. Um, so a couple of objections that we'll get to as we're cl getting close to the end here with regards to like the Reformation. And one of these, them is that it just caused more division. Like you talked about um, this idea of scripture just being like self-evident and we can understand it clearly. Um, but then the Catholic will say, hey, but don't we have all these different Protestant um, denominations that are like you have the Calvinist, the Arminist, the Molinist, the Premillennialist, the Postmillennialist, the Amillennialist. Like yeah. there's all these different divisions. Um, so right. how would you respond to that kind of objection to yeah. the Reformation? Yeah, what I would respond is that there are divisions in every faith tradition. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church is not exempt from this. They mm. always claim to be monolithic, but there there are fractures in the Roman Catholic tradition as well. I mean, you got groups out there called the Sadievacanists, and these guys say there hasn't been a true pope uh, on Peter's chair uh, since um, the early 60s. When Vatican II started, that to them was the sign of apostasy. The Zadivacanists will tell you without a blink that every pope um, uh, since Paul VI all the way up to today, they're all apostate popes. Mm. And um, and then you've got, uh, then you've got uh, movements uh, that claim that you should only follow the Latin Mass. Vatican II abandoned the praying of the Mass in Latin and, and facing the altar. Now they face the people. Um, you have even splits within the Orthodox communion. You have groups like the Uniate. The Uniate are basically um, groups that join with the Roman Catholic Church. They recognize the Pope as their head. So my neighbor here in Toronto, my neighbor is a Ukrainian Catholic priest, mm. but he follows the whole liturgical Orthodox Julian calendar. Uh, they, they have icons and everything. But the only difference is they 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 believe the Pope is the head of the church. Well, the Orthodox, you know, the Orthodox Church based in Constantinople, in Istanbul, they would say, no, 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 no. You, the Pope is not our head. So you'll find there are divisions within these communities. But in the case of the Protestant Reformation, you're right. Many Roman Catholics and Orthodox are fond of saying, but look at all these different denominations. But these different denominations do not disagree on fundamental issues like, for example, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace, and so forth, where you find these disagreements is in certain practices. Like, for example, the Lutherans, Luther broke with Zwingli over the question of the Lord's Supper. Mm. Uh, you know, Luther had a very strong view of the real presence, consubstantiation. Zwingli believed that the Lord's Supper was, was symbolic. The bread mm. and the cup are sim symbols and so forth. But they were still within the spirit of the Reformation. That is to say, they both, they all claimed sola scriptura, sola fide, and so forth. But where they differed with each other was in church administration, the Presbyterians very much on the presbytery. Um, and then, of course, the question of baptism. You know, the Anabaptists come on the scene and say, but biblically, if we're following the same principle of back to the scriptures, then we should not be baptizing infants. We should only baptize believers in Christ. And so these differences are basically 
over minor areas. They're not mm. major departures from the faith. It's not like they're saying, oh, you know, J Jesus Christ is not the God man. The Trinity is false. Jesus was not born of the Virgin Mary. They all confess the creeds. They all confess mm. Nicaea. They all confess the Apostles' Creed. And so at the end of the day, while there is a lot of different groups within the Protestant denominations, all of these groups would unite under the one banner of sola scriptura, affirm the fundamentals of the Christian faith. But then again, remember, Zach, that a lot of these denominations, not just the Protestant, but Roman Catholicism, there's also liberal movements that have begun. And so you've got these liberal churches that have some of the wackiest ideas, but even in Roman Catholicism, you're seeing clergymen in the Roman Catholic Church that are basically moving into the direction of, you know, the whole critical race theory. They're moving into the whole area of, of social justice ideas and the whole being pro-LGBTQ and so forth, things that the church traditionally would not do. So mm -hmm. we, we, need to, we need to understand that there's, there's a lot of bad stuff in both camps. So what I try to do is I try to avoid mudslinging. A lot of people are, want to mudsling, but the problem is that both of these groups have they have skeletons in their closet as well. So mm. they're not immune. Yeah, that's great. Um, I have one more question for you, and then we'll go to a tiny bit of Q and A. So if you have questions or you want to support the show, you can send it a super chat. Um, but how, one of the, uh, the the more common objections that I also hear I also hear is just like. Um, how could God allow his church to be lost for like a thousand years? If the, if, if the reformation was a good move, like you have like the Catholic church and the Orthodox church, which dominate um, Christendom from at least like maybe like 500 AD to 1500. Um, and only in like 1517 with Martin Luther, um, you get this reformation yeah, that starts to yeah. tick. And I know you've kind of said this is not entirely true earlier, but you just want to talk a little bit about yeah, this objection here. Yeah. Well, the claim assumes it's making some presuppositions. They're assuming that the church has always been Roman Catholic or it mm -hmm. has always been Orthodox. When as a matter of fact, uh, early Christians um, in the first three centuries of the church, they all embrace the word Catholic. I mean, the, the Apostles' Creed says, the Nicene Creed rather says, I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Mm -hmm. And the word Catholic simply means universal or global. And so I see myself as a Catholic Christian. I'm not Roman Catholic. I don't. I don't submit to the to the to the Bishop of Rome. I am Catholic. All Christians. The Church of Christ is Catholic. It's universal, made up of all people. And so the assumption they're making is the Roman Catholic Church, as you know it today, was here for two thousand years. And and that's that is a that is an audacious claim to be to be sure. But we need to understand that we don't know the hearts of all of God's people throughout history. We know mm -hmm. that there were people in the early church. We know that Clement of Rome, we know that people like Diognetius, we know that Athanasius, we know that uh, Augustine had very high views of scripture as ultimate authority. Uh, Augustine spoke about God's election, predestination. He spoke about views that Calvin would later emphasize in his institutes. Um, and then of course, as we move through church history, we we hear these these Christians that Again, we're not talking about, we, we don't have this wide access to all the information about all these Christians and all the time. We don't know that. What we do know is what has been recorded, what has been written down. And we know that throughout church history, there have always been those who opposed, for example, the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome. When he made these grand claims to supremacy, there were Christians who opposed that. Hmm. And then as you move into the you know the turn of the millennium, I mentioned the Waldensians. The Waldensians were opposing the Bishop of Rome. They were emphasizing the scriptures. They were emphasizing preaching alone, and that was uh, that was four hundred years before Luther that came on the scene. So I think that there there have there has always been a remnant of God's people, mm. and I think this is important because it's never the majority. It's always the remnant. It's always the minority. You know, and, and look at the days of Elijah. Israel is in is in rank apostasy, worshiping Baal. And Elijah thinks he's the only one left. And he actually says to God, take my take me out. You know, I'm not better than my fathers. You know, I'm the only one who serves you. And it's over. You know, I've done my mm -hmm. best, Lord. Take me out. And remember what the Lord said to him? He said, Elijah, you know, I still have 7,000 in reserve. I still have 7,000 mm -hmm. who have not bowed to Baal. And so the point here is this, God has always had his remnant. Even in Israel, when we think of the time of King Josiah, when you think about the fact that the prophetess Huldah, I mean, imagine calling your daughter 
Holda. Uh, the prophet is Holda discovered the book of the law in the temple when they were repairing the temple in the days of King mm. Josiah. She discovered the book of the law, which was missing. So for all those years, those apostate kings were rejecting the word of the Lord and they were worshiping these other gods. And when Josiah read that Torah, the books, the books of Moses, it says Josiah was, was so uh, repentful and, and realized why these calamities had come upon Israel. And so you need to understand that there have been long periods of apostasy in the history of God's people. And there's always been that little faithful remnant. And that's still the case today. There is still a faithful remnant in this world that worships God. So when God looks at his people, the Lord knows those who are his. When he looks at his people, he doesn't see these various different denominations. When he sees his people, he sees those who are faithful to him, who are serving him, who is suffering persecution for his namesake, for the sake of righteousness. But we always make the mistake that we, we're always looking for this organizational building this institution, you know, with a CEO mm. at the top. And we're assuming that, well, you know, this is what we had through all these years. No, there were a lot of dissenters. A lot of these dissenters, even, even, even you look at someone like Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher and mathematician, Blaise Pascal, mm. the French philosopher, um, he joined a group called the Jansenists. And the Jansenists were a group in the Roman Catholic Church that were rediscovering Augustine. And they were going back to Augustine. And you know what? The, the, the Roman Catholic Church condemned them. The Pope condemned them. And the Pope condemned them of being covert, uh, undercover Calvinists. Mm. And so because they were too Calvinist, because they were going back to Augustine, like, like Calvin did. So I would say that throughout church history, there have been dark periods, dark periods of apostasy. Uh, Israel is kind of that template that we compare it to. And for the majority of, of Israel's history, the majority of the people were apostates. The kings were apostates. Even in the wilderness, that first generation God brought out of Egypt through Moses, the first generation died in the wilderness. God made sure they died only to survive Joshua and Caleb. And it's only the second generation that made it into the, to the land of promise. Uh, and so that is a warning to us that, that just because you're part of the majority does not mean that you win. The majority mm. is not always the winners. So I think that God has been faithful. There has never been a time in human history where God was without a witness. Um, some of them we know about because of various writings that have been preserved. Others, there's a lot of you know, unknown soldiers, unsung heroes that God knows and that have made a difference in world history. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, we're going to do a tiny bit of Q&A. Probably won't sure. go through too much because we're right, we're right around the hour mark here. Um, sure. But Steve Fredo had a super chat, so thank you so much for your support. Really appreciate it. Um, he says, what about the critique from Catholics if they find scripture and tradition equal? Um, because it's self-contradictory um, for Christians to hold to the Bible's authority um, when following Christ that they can't have two of the five solas. Um, so obviously talking about like a challenge here to like sola scriptura. Um, I don't know exactly what you're getting out of this, Dr. Costa. Yeah, I don't, I'm not really following it. Um, let me read that again. What about critique from Catholics that they find scripture and tradition equal, but it's self-contradicting for Christians to hold to the Bible as authority when following Christ that is so, so can't have two of the five solas. Um, I'm not sure what the question is getting at. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure if he's, if he's agreeing with my position or not. I think he is. But it's 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 a matter of fact that tradition and scripture uh, contradict. Uh, so if you were to take purgatory, for example, does the Bible teach that there is a third place other than heaven and hell, that there is a third place that that Christians go to who have not committed mortal sins? They've committed less serious sins called venial sins. And so they go to purgatory for a temporary uh, duration. Uh, where their venial sins are purged. That's why it's called purgatory. It's a place of purging. And they mm -hmm. suffer what's called temporal punishments for those sins. Um, that's not in the Bible. And so the Rome would say, ah, but it's in Second uh, Maccabees chapter 12, and it comes from that book. But there's problems with Second Maccabees 12 because uh, if you read the text, uh, when it talks about prayers for the dead, these, these dead soldiers uh, were actually guilty of idolatry which in the Roman Catholic Church is a mortal sin, which sends you to hell. So these guys would be in hell, not in purgatory. Uh, and 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 besides that, uh, the Pope uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth disavowed purgatory. He actually said purgatory is more a state of mind than an actual place, and that contradicts 
what all these other popes have said throughout history. And even Pope Francis, right? I call him Pope Frankie. Uh, Pope Francis today uh, has said things that have gone against what former popes have said. So when he says things like, uh, with homosexuality, oh, who am I to judge? And uh, and then he says, civil unions are perfectly okay. As long as they're not married by the church, uh, two gay men can live in civil union. Um, John Paul II would be spinning in his grave right now, as would every other pope that has ever lived. And so we see it today. Pope Francis keeps contradicting himself. He's now saying things about Mary that agrees with Protestants, but now he's contradicting what all the other popes have said about Mary. So you see, folks, this is the point. The only thing that remains steadfast and lasting is the Word of God. Hmm. It's so great. Um, we are at the hour mark, so we'll probably have to be done here. But Dr. Costa, um, thank you so much for your time. Glass things you don't want to say, you didn't get to say before we wrap things up here. Uh, sorry, you were breaking out there, Zach. Can you just repeat that? Oh, I apologize. That's it. Um, we're, we're right around the end of the time. So is there anything that you want to, like, last thoughts or anything you want to say before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, if you if you folks are interested, there's a great book uh, written by William Webster. It's called The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. The Church of Rome at the Bar of History by William Webster. He does a fine job of discussing these issues. Um, and uh, he has many years of experience in Roman Catholicism and Protestant relations. So that'd be a great book for you. I know you have it in your description box, Zach, but if people are interested, mm -hmm. They can always go to my YouTube channel, and there I've got a lot of videos on apologetics. I put some, I put one up on actually on the Pope and what he mm -hmm. his recent comments on Mary. Uh, they can look at. So I would encourage your viewers if they're interested, go to my uh, YouTube channel. Please subscribe and like, mm -hmm. and uh, you'll be getting a daily not a daily, but you'll be getting uh, a regular feed of uh, challenging videos on apologetics. Yeah, it's so great. Um, and thank you, Dr. Costa. And after you go, subscribe and like and do all that fun stuff over um, Dr. Costa's channel. If you're new to here in apologetics, I encourage you to do that um, as well. So if you're new here, be sure to subscribe, leave a like, appreciate that on your way out. And if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash adhere to apologetics. Um, your support means a lot. You can support for as little as a dollar a month. And we're like 85% funded. So appreciate everyone's support through there. Um, but Dr. Costa, one last time, thank you so much uh, just for, for sharing and your expertise and all those things. It's been My very pleasure. beneficial. Yeah, my pleasure, Zach. My pleasure. And thank, uh, thank you to everyone who joined. Thank you, Jesus, Jonathan, Sire, uh, BDS, and everyone else. Have a good one. God bless. God bless.